science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, happy Easter and happy Passover to everyone out there. And uh, we're going to address both of those holidays today. Uh, Easter, we're going to talk a little bit about eggs. And for Passover, what about a little insight into the story of Moses and the burning bush? We'll look at those. We will also talk about a very impactful study on hypertension, on high blood pressure, and what you can do nutritionally in order to decrease it. And this is not the usual silliness that uh, that we hear from uh, uh, various kind of food industries. This has uh, scientific validity, so we're going to talk about that. Uh, but it is also a very interesting day in the sense that, as you know, I ask a question every uh, Sunday morning on the trivia show here in, in on CJD. Uh, the reason for that is uh, so that it opens discussion on the afternoon show, on my show, uh, and I can tell you the story behind the question. And usually there's no problem in getting an answer to those questions because uh, our CJD listeners are very smart and uh, they also know how to make their fingers dance on the keyboard and uh, Google stuff. And invariably they get the answer. Today is a special day. I asked a question this morning and believe it or not, it was not answered. And therefore I will now ask it again and you know what? On the trivia show, they offer a prize. Uh, this morning, the prize was um, one of my books. And uh, we're going to offer that same prize, prize here to anyone who now gets this question. Okay, let me tell you what this question is. It's all about jeans. And uh, jeans, of course, very, very popular fashion item. And a novel process for manufacturing blue jeans eliminates a contaminant that has caused concern because of possible contact with the skin since it is embedded in the fabric of the genes. What is that contaminant that has caused concern in blue genes and that is now being eliminated by a newfangled process? If you know that, you give us a call, 514-790-0800. That's our number here at CJD, 514-790-0800. And uh, you can also text your questions and comments to 514-800, but for the contest, you have to get on the air in order to give me the answer and uh, claim the prize. So again, we're looking for the contaminant that a novel process, manufacturing blue jeans, is eliminating. Okay, well, let's get down to matters of the day. And uh, why don't we start with the uh, story of, of Passover, which is a very interesting one, because, of course, it uh, chronicles the uh, story of the Exodus, as told in the Bible, when the Israelites who had been imprisoned in the land of Egypt uh, were let go by the Pharaoh after Moses had gone to his research director and said, God, what do I do to convince this man to let my people go? And eventually, after the ten plagues, uh, the Israelites were allowed to go. And as the Bible tells us, uh, there were about 600,000 families, which would be about 2 million people, who wandered through the desert for 40 years until they came to the land of Canaan. And the story of Exodus in the Bible, of course, uh, describes all of this. 
Historically, there have been all kinds of accounts of whether or not the biblical story is historically correct. It doesn't really matter because whether it is fact or myth, uh, it is uh, a story that allowed uh, Jews to celebrate the uh, holiday of Passover for thousands of years and was instrumental in in keeping the people uh, together. Uh, historically, there really isn't much evidence of the uh, of the Exodus. You would think that two million people wandering the Sinai Desert would have had to leave some remnants of pottery or whatever. None of that has ever been found, and there's no chronicle uh, in uh, Egypt. The Egypt, Egyptians were very careful to keep records, and uh, there's no uh, no accounting for such a massive Exodus. But in any case, the biblical story is captivating. Moses looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. That passage from Exodus is one of the most famous ones in the entire Bible. After all, it was from that burning bush on Mount Horeb that God spoke to Moses, telling him that he had been chosen to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. Searching for possible scientific explanations for biblical phenomena is an interesting pastime. Of course, that is all that it is because for those who have faith that biblical accounts are based on true miracles, no scientific explanation is necessary. And for those who are skeptical that the Bible is factual, no scientific rationalization is needed for events they believe never occurred. Whatever one's point of view, biblical stories can serve as a springboard for leaping into some captivating science. Suggestions have been made that the Dictamnus albus plant found throughout northern Africa is a candidate for the burning bush. In the summer, the plant, also known as the gas plant, exudes a variety of volatile oils that can catch fire readily and may give the impression that the bush is burning. So was Moses witnessing the combustion of a mix of terpenes, flavonoids, coumarins, and phenylpropanoids? Interesting hypothesis about the burning bush, but... uh, one that can be readily doused. The plant's volatile oils do not catch fire spontaneously. They need a source of ignition. Moses is unlikely to have been walking around with flintstones looking for bushes to ignite. And when the vapors coming off the dictamnus albus plant do ignite, the flash lasts just a few seconds. Had the flash managed to set the leaves on fire, the bush certainly would have been consumed. So if Moses Moses really did see a burning bush that was not consumed, well, maybe he was seeing things. At least that is the opinion of Benny Shannon, a professor of cognitive psychology at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Professor Shannon suggests that Moses may have been having a hallucinatory experience, and he bases that theory on his own fling with plants that can alter consciousness. It seems Shannon was once invited to a religious ceremony performed by natives of the Amazon, where he had the opportunity to taste a potion made from the ayahuasca plant. Off he went on a hallucinogenic trip, which he described as having spiritual connotations. It isn't clear exactly what he meant by that, but clearly he liked the experience because he claims to have repeated it hundreds of times, even writing a book on the subject. If it happened to him, it could have happened to Moses, he suggests, perhaps somewhat tongue-in-cheek. The problem is that the Ayusca is a tropical vine found in the jungles of the Amazon, not in the sands of the desert. However, there's a plant that grows in the Sinai and the Negev, 
with similar properties. And that is the Pegamum harmala, also known as wild rue. Like ayahuasca, the plant seed capsules contain a number of alkaloids such as harmine, vasacine, and harmaline that can affect the mind. These compounds interfere with the activity of an enzyme known as monoamine oxidase, which is involved in the breakdown of dopamine, serotonin, phenylethylamine, tyramine, melatonin, and all compounds that play important roles in our nervous system. These monoamines, as they're called, increase in concentration the presence of monoamine oxidase inhibitors, such as the ones found in the seed pods of the wild rue. The result can be a consciousness-altering experience. In fact, monoamine oxidase inhibitors are used as medications to treat depression by boosting levels of dopamine and serotonin, which are involved in mood regulation. Whether the Israelites use psychoactive plants in religious ceremonies is debatable, but apparently modern-day Bedouins who wander through the same desert where the biblical accounts place Moses do partake of wild rue. So, interesting hypothesis. Uh, it's something, of course, that will never be proven one way or the, or the other. Uh, but uh, to me, what is interesting is that the, the story can allow us to talk about uh, uh, some interesting aspects of science, such as the combustion of, of bushes uh, because of the natural combustible compounds that they contain, and in the latter case, uh, about the ayahuasca plant, which certainly give rise to hallucinations, and the presence of this uh, wild rue in the desert, which has monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So there you go, the story of Moses and the burning bush. Let's check traffic. And after that, we'll be right back. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show, CJD 800, Newstalk Radio in Montreal. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, let's see how the afternoon crowd does on the question that uh, the morning people were unable to answer. So let's go to Angela. Hi, Angela. Hi there. What is your answer? Well, I see it's the e-flow using light and air. It's what? The e-flow technology, or is it the G2? No, nothing like that. Yeah, the G2 ozone treatment. No, no, nope, nothing nothing like that. Instead of all the chemicals, they're using the laser light and the air? Nope, this is not what, uh, there's a contaminant, a specific contaminant. That's what I'm asking about. The name oh, of I that. Oh, I thought you were looking for, okay, there's cadmium, there's um, a lot of poisonous. I thought you were looking for the. No, I'm looking one. for one specific compound. Okay, let me go to uh, Mike. Hey, Mike. Hello? Hi. Uh, could it be nickel? No, it isn't nickel. It isn't nickel. Okay, so we're still looking for the answer. We're looking for a substance that that uh, is part and parcel of the uh, production of uh, genes, and I will give you a clue. It has to do with indigo. It has to do with the dye that is used to color the genes. There's a contaminant in that dye. That is the problem, and that's the contaminant that we are looking for. Okay, uh, Sima. Hi, Sima. 
Hi, uh, Dr. Joe. I have a question. I wanted to ask you about uh, the seaweed that they use for sushi. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine uh, was mentioning she was concerned about that because in Japan, you know, they had some of those environmental problems, and she was, like, uh, not sure that it's actually uh, okay to eat and it might have some, like, contamination. So no, seaweed is fine to eat. I mean, in fact, uh, it has a pretty high dose of iodine and, and iron and even some calcium. And uh, seaweed also has omega-3 fats. Uh, you know, that that's where fish get it, from algae and from seaweed. So there's nothing wrong with eating seaweed. And, the, like, does it come from Japan, a lot of the sushi that's made uh, locally here in Montreal? No, no. Okay, so it's nothing to be concerned about. It's not, no, go ahead and eat your... <laughs> I, I'd be more concerned about the raw fish in there than the, I the seaweed. I agree with you. Okay, okay. for answering that. Okay, okay. bye. Uh, let's go to Renee. Hey, Renee. Hi. Would it be formaldehyde? It isn't formaldehyde. No, uh, that's a pretty good guess uh, because formaldehyde is used in, in the manufacture of some fabrics. But in, no, in the case of blue jeans, uh, formaldehyde is not a contaminant in indigo. Oh, okay. So, okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. Let's, uh, let's try Peter. Hey, Peter. Hi there, Joe. I, I'm going to say arsenic. I'm going to say no. <laughs> I'm going to say bye and enjoy the show. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Thanks very much. Okay, so the the clue, and I think it's a very important clue, it's it's a, a byproduct of production of indigo. So if you are going to start looking around and Googling, take a look at how indigo is produced and what uh, chemical residue might be found in the fabric. Okay, let's see if Louise has an answer. Hey, Louise. Hi. Um, is it cobalt? No, it isn't cobalt. Okay, sorry. It isn't cobalt. Thank you. Okay, we'll, we'll go to Anya. Anya? Yeah, is it permanganate? No, it isn't permanganate. No, it isn't. Again, start looking to see how indigo is manufactured. Okay. okay, so that will okay. Let, let's let's go, Michelle. Michelle. Hi, I think it's asbestos. No, no, there's no asbestos uh, in okay. in blue jeans, and certainly asbestos is not used in the in the production of indigo. Okay, indigo is the is the coloring, the synthetic coloring that is used to impart the color to blue jeans. And when you make indigo, there is an issue about one of the chemicals that is used to make indigo being left behind in the jeans. That's what we're looking uh, for. Okay. All right. Let's see. Who do we have here? Uh, hello? Yes. Hi. It's hi. Catherine. I'm calling for the Dr. Joe question, please. Yes. Yes. Go ahead. Hi, Dr. Joe? Yeah. I think it's lead. No, it's not lead. Lead is not involved in the making indigo. <gasps> okay. Thank you. Okay. Boy, I, I think we're really befuddling people here. I told you, you've got to start looking to see how indigo is manufactured. Okay, next. Alex. Yes. Yes, yes, go ahead. We're waiting, yeah. waiting, uh, bated breath. Is, sorry, would it be cyanide? No, it isn't cyanide. Cyanide is not used in the manufacture of indigo. Okay, start looking. Take a look. It shouldn't be so hard to find what the synthetic process is for making indigo. And it's, uh, I'll give you a further clue, it's the, it's the starting material that we're talking about. And it's a widely used compound, and it's critical in the production of uh, 
uh, of indigo. Okay. All right. Well, uh, we'll give you a little time to try to get an uh, uh, answer to that question. In the meantime, for those of you who don't know, whenever I'm not talking to you here Sunday afternoons, I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society. And our mandate there is to demystify science for you guys, for our students, separate sense from nonsense, keep people out of the clutches of charlatans. And uh, our office was uh, opened in 1999 by then-principal Bernard Shapiro, and we are celebrating 20 years of uh, doing what we do, answering questions by email, by phone, writing articles, uh, doing radio interviews, uh, writing books. I mean, anything that we can think of uh, in order to disseminate good scientific information. And as you may know, uh, last year we started a weekly newsletter. We call it the OSS Digest, and it appears every Saturday morning. And uh, it's a collage of interesting articles, videos that we produce, uh, some commentaries on the news. Uh, there's a, a piece in there called Did You Know? Uh, also, You Asked, where we try to answer questions. Uh, obviously, it is free, and uh, all you have to do is sign up. How do you sign up? Well, you go to our website, which is mcgill.ca slash OSS. You can sign up for the newsletter. Also, you will see that on May the 23rd, we are organizing a special event, a birthday bash. And uh, this is to commemorate our 20 years. But it's not just going to be a party. It's going to be real science. We're going to have a panel discussion. And uh, we're going to discuss the ups and downs of trying to communicate science. And we've invited some very special guests, including Timothy Caulfield. And you probably know Tim. Uh, Tim is a professor in, in Edmonton. He's actually a law professor, but he has a tremendous interest in, in pseudoscience. And uh, he's done TV shows, numerous kind of interviews, written books. Uh, his, I guess, most famous book is, Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything? And the answer to that is basically yes. So Tim will be with us and uh, I'll tell you about our other guests uh, as well. But you can uh, sign up because we do need you to register. We have to have an idea of how many people are coming because we have to order some very special refreshments. So go to mcgill.ca slash OSS. You'll get all the info there. Right now we're going to take a break. And uh, we'll listen to the news, and hopefully after that we can come back and you'll have an answer to my question about the contaminant that is being phased out from blue jeans. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show, CJD 800, Newstalk Radio in Montreal. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are looking for the answer to my question about the byproduct of indigo, indigo synthesis. Indigo, of course, is used to color blue jeans. And some of this contaminant ends up in the fabric, and that has been of some concern. And uh, there's a process that has been developed that makes indigo without this particular contaminant. And we're looking for the name of that contaminant. Noel. Hi. Hi. Uh, would it be... Aniline? Yes, it is aniline. Very good. All right. Now you're going to tell me how you figured that out. Uh, it's called the internet. Ah, okay. But how, how did you go about it? 
I just put in keywords that you were saying and scroll and one thing leads to another and there it is. Very good. Okay, now I'm going to tell you the story. So sit back and listen, okay? Because it is indeed, uh, I think, a very uh, a very interesting uh, story. I'm going to start with this story in 1826 when German chemist Otto Unverdorben uh, subjected a sample of indigo to heat and he thought that uh, this, what we know as destructive distillation, when you break something down with, with heat, would yield some fragments of the substance that could offer some clue to its chemical makeup because they didn't know in those days what, what indigo was. Uh, this particular blue dye had been extracted from the leaves of the indigo plant, native to India, of course, which is why it's called indigo, uh, since uh, you know his ancient times. I mean, the ancient Mesopotamians, the ancient Egyptians, the Romans all knew about, uh, about indigo. And uh, Unver Dorben... Uh, was able to isolate a substance from there. He called it crystalline. Later, it was found to be the substance we know as aniline, which could also be isolated from petroleum. And it wasn't an easy thing to isolate aniline from petroleum. But with aniline, we have a very interesting story. And it all has to do with August Wilhelm Hoffmann, who was one of the leading lights in German chemical research and was invited to be the first director ever of the Royal College of Chemistry in London. And it was there that he had a young student, William Henry Perkin, and he proposed a research project to Perkin, and that was to try to find a way to make quinine. Quinine was available from the cinchona tree, but that grew in Peru. It was hard to get enough amounts in order to treat everyone who was suffering from malaria. Now, of course, in retrospect, Perkin had no way of synthesizing quinine, a very complex molecule. But it seemed to Hoffman that aniline, which he had tested, uh, as, uh, or at least he had studied uh, as an isolate from petroleum, he thought that this because of its chemical composition being similar to that of quinine, except for the absence of oxygen, could be a way to make quinine. And he asked Perkin to take aniline, add oxidizing agents to see if he could make quinine. Of course, it was futile. But um, one day when he couldn't clean out his glassware, Perkin used some alcohol to try to get out the gummy residue, and all of a sudden that residue turned into a brilliant purple-like color, he eventually called that Movine, and uh, he borrowed some money from his father, founded a factory, started to manufacture this, became a very, very rich man, and uh, this was the first of what we now call the aniline dyes, because it was made from aniline. Actually, luckily for Perkin, uh, the aniline sample that he used, which had been extracted from coal tar, was impure, and it contained a compound called toluidine. And it was the reaction of the aniline with the toluidine that resulted in this new dye of, of movine. But as you can imagine, because of the uh, financial success that Perkin had, all kinds of other chemists and companies tried to capitalize and try to make new dyes from aniline. In fact, the giant German chemical company that we know as BASF, which stands for Badisha Aniline und Soda Fabrik, uh, got its start producing aniline. 
uh, because it was such a, a, a desired commodity. And uh, they were able to produce it synthetically. No longer did they have to isolate it from petroleum because a French chemist by the name of André Bichon uh, had found a way to make it from benzene. And benzene was a relatively easy material to uh, to come by. And uh, pretty soon, numerous dyes were manufactured from aniline. And uh, this had all kinds of, of spin-offs. Because if dyes could be produced synthetically, why not other substances like pharmaceuticals? And before long, dye companies were cranking out synthetic drugs such as aspirin and, and heroin, all because of the research on, on, on aniline. Uh, but how does indigo fit into this picture? The manufacture of indigo uh, traditionally relied on extracting the substance from the leaves of the plant. But that was expensive and very, very time-consuming. However, uh, eventually BASF, the same company that I talked about, found a way to make aniline synthetically. And when they were able to make aniline synthetically, uh, they found a way to use that aniline to make indigo. So today, the indigo in the world is made from aniline. And the only reason that it is possible is because aniline can be so easily produced uh, by the method that was uh, uh, developed by uh, BASF based on uh, André Béchamp's original ideas. However, since the starting material is aniline, it is impossible to rid the final dye totally of the starting material. Uh, because chemical processes do not go to 100% completion. So the indigo is contaminated with a little bit of, of aniline. And why is this an issue? Uh, because some people can have a skin reaction to, uh, to aniline. It's very, very rare, but uh, uh, it, it can happen. And there's a lot of indigo that is produced in the world today. About 5,000 tons of synthetic indigo are made from aniline every year. Almost all of that for the dyeing of genes. Each pair of genes has about 10 grams of indigo in there. And some of that is contaminated with, uh, with aniline. Well, uh, the reason that I ask this question is because recently a Swiss chemical company, Arcroma, has developed a proprietary method of synthesizing indigo that does not use aniline as the starting material. And therefore, we're now looking at a much greener uh, indigo industry. What the process exactly is, I cannot tell you because uh, it is a proprietary secret, as you can imagine. So anyway, that's the answer to the question. The contaminant that I was looking for was aniline. And uh, obviously, it has played a very, very important role in the development, not only of the dye industry, but of the pharmaceutical industry as well. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show, CJ800, Newstalk Radio in Montreal. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. So I titillated you earlier in the show about a dietary intervention for hypertension, which is not the usual sort of nutritional claptrap that uh, permeates the Internet. In this particular case, we're talking about flaxseed, dietary flaxseed. 
And uh, I have sort of an interest in that because a few years ago uh, I wrote a book. Uh, the title was Let Them Eat Flax. And uh, we talked about some of the benefits of, of flaxseed. And in those days, uh, basically the focus was on whether or not it had any role to play in the prevention of, of uh, breast cancer. We talked about that. But here we go with uh, the antihypertensive effect. A very interesting research comes to us, University of, of Manitoba. Uh, where uh, the researchers looked at uh, 110 people who had elevated blood pressure, especially systolic, that is the upper number, uh, over 140. And that is pre pretty significant uh, elevation. And, of course, uh, high blood pressure is a risk factor for heart disease and for, uh, for strokes as, as well. They put... Uh, these patients on a diet that included 30 grams of milled flaxseed, that is ground flaxseed, or a placebo. And uh, this, the flaxseed and the placebo, which was um, whole wheat, finely ground whole wheat, they were incorporated into, ver into various foods, and there was no difference in taste. So nobody could tell whether or not they were eating the flaxseed or not. And after six months, the group that was eating the 30 grams of milk flaxseed on a daily basis had a significant reduction in, in, uh, in blood pressure, uh, going from an average of about 142, which they had at the beginning of, of the study, uh, down to 136. Now, of course, 136 is, is still higher than one would like to see. But what is interesting about this is that there was any effect at all that a dietary intervention, which is not a, you know, such a difficult thing to do with you know, 30 grams of ground flaxseed uh, a day, it, it had an effect on, uh, on blood pressure. Um, of course, this doesn't mean that it can replace medication. But uh, it's just a, another reason to try to incorporate uh, flaxseed into the diet. Uh, what, what are the potential um, components in flaxseed that are beneficial? Well, there are lignans in there. Those in the test tube at least have anti-cancer properties. There are the omega-3 fats uh, that are present in there, which can have uh, physiological uh, activity. And also, uh, flaxseeds are high in fiber. So it's just good stuff to eat. Again, it is not a superfood. There are no such things. Uh, but incorporating flaxseed into the diet is good. Anyway, I also told you that we talk a little bit about eggs because Easter, of course, is associated with eggs. Exactly why? Well, there are many opinions on that. Uh, but uh, eggs are a, a symbol of rebirth and fertility. And uh, uh, Easter, of course, is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is sort of a rebirth. Uh, but there are many theories about just why eggs are associated with Easter, but they certainly are associated with Easter. And uh, hard-boiled eggs especially so, because those are the ones that are, are colored. How do you make a hard-boiled egg that looks aesthetically nice and is, uh, doesn't crack and you know is, uh, has the right color inside and is appetizing, good to eat. Well, first of all, you need to understand why an egg hardens when cooked. This is simply a matter of protein chemistry. A raw egg is mostly water in which protein molecules, along with some fat and cholesterol, are suspended. The proteins, which are, of course are long chains of amino acids, are coiled up like little balls of string with minimal interaction with each other. Heat causes these molecules to uncoil, exposing sites on their surfaces where links to other protein molecules can be forged. It is as if the strings straightened out and then intertwined with each other. 
this microscopic clustering is manifested as macroscopic hardness. The molecular clusters also reflect more light, so the cooked egg loses its transparency. If heating goes on too long, water molecules, which have become trapped in the protein lattice, are squeezed out, leading to an even tighter protein structure and a rubbery texture. We do not want to overcook an egg. What about the dreaded flat bottom? This can arise because a raw egg does not completely fill its shell. There's a little air pocket inside which actually furnishes a chick with its first breath of air. If this air is not allowed to escape before the white hardens, the egg will develop a flat bottom. Older eggs are more prone to this because they have lost moisture and therefore have a bigger airspace. As the air is heated, it expands and begins to escape through the porous shell. This is often evidenced by a telltale column of bubbles rising from an egg immersed in hot water. If the air expands too fast, however, it can crack the shell and torment the cook with white streamers. These form as the liquidy egg white, the albumen, spills out and coagulates in the hot water. Adding a little salt or lemon juice can circumvent this problem because like heat, these reagents cause the proteins to unfold, join together and harden. This happens immediately as the white begins to ooze out and as a result, the crack is sealed. But it is better to prevent the calamity rather than try to fix the problem after it happens. So, just take a nail or thumbtack and make a little hole in the egg prior to cooking. The escaping air will prevent pressure buildup and will also allow the egg white to flow into the space previously occupied by the air. And no flat bottom. Unfortunately, there is more than one way to crack an egg. If a cold egg is placed into hot water, the shell begins to expand. But since the shell is not of the same thickness everywhere, some areas expand more than others and the resulting stress leads to fracture. The answer is to place the egg in cold water to start with. Then bring to a boil, turn the heat down to a slow simmer for 10 minutes. After this, immerse in cold water and peel. If this sounds like too much trouble, you can seek out a farmer who treats his hens to carbonated water. <laughs> this increases the carbonate concentration in their blood, resulting in stronger eggs. I'm told this is done in hot climates where chickens pant a lot and exhale a great deal of carbon dioxide. Seems the chickens actually prefer Perrier to other carbonated waters. An eggshell can undergo stress factor upon cooling as well. Some parts of the shell will contract faster than others. The young man who heated seven eggs in their shell for five minutes in the, <clears throat> in the microwave found out about this the hard way. Somehow the eggs survived the pressure buildup in the oven, but when he sat down to enjoy the fruits of his labor, six of the eggs exploded. He was burned about the face. Not a good way to make hard-boiled eggs. How easily an egg peels depends on its age. Fresh eggs tend to have a higher carbon dioxide content. Some of this gas dissolves in the egg's moisture to form carbonic acid. As an egg ages, the carbon dioxide diffuses out and the contents become more alkaline. This weakens the inner membrane that surrounds the egg and prevents it from sticking to the hardened white. Researchers have proven this by showing that fresh eggs exposed to alkaline ammonia vapor can be peeled readily. How do you know if there's going to be a peeling problem? Just place the egg in a pot of cold water. A fresh egg has a small air pocket and sinks. An older egg will float.
Now you know how to make eggs. Go ahead, cook them, and don't worry about the cholesterol because the most recent studies show that eating five to seven eggs a week is not going to have any impact on your blood cholesterol. So that's the egg story. We also learned about Moses. You know how you can reduce hypertension with flaxseed, and you know all about aniline. You've been listening to the Dr. Joe Show, CJ800 News Talk Radio in Montreal. We'll be back with you same time, safe station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Shorts, wishing you a happy Easter, happy Passover, and hope that all of the chemistry in your life comes out just right.